0: Alright, good evening everybody. Good to have you with us tonight. You can open to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We're going to continue, the Lord willing, finish this chapter. We started last week and made it down to verse 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. I don't have any announcements beyond uh, reminding you about the exams that are due tonight. You have a Matthew and a Galatians exam. And I know that several of you have already emailed that uh, exam through, so I appreciate you guys being on top of that. But you still have till the end of the night to get that in and receive full marks for it, so please be sure to do that. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you this evening for this privilege uh, to stop our day and uh, to put away all the distractions that our lives have to provide and this world has to offer Father, we get a chance to focus in on You, Your Word, and what You've done in our hearts and lives. Please, Lord, teach us tonight. We're going to look at how complete we are in You and what a wonderful truth that is. Let it sink in deep into our hearts. Please guide me now as I speak and as I teach. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me just remind you of the outline. Uh, I would name the chapter Complete in Christ, and the first seven verses is basically Paul saying that Christ is enough. And then he goes on for the rest of the chapter to talk about various things that will not improve your spiritual life. And evidently, the people of Paul's day, and it still holds true all the way until today, there was a lot of pressure for the early church to succumb to these other plans, these other systems to add to their spiritual life. So, we talked, I mentioned the outline philosophies, ordinances, spiritual beings, angels specifically, and the commandments of men, man made traditions, things like that. None of those things are going to improve your spiritual life. Uh, you have all you need in Christ. So, in verse 8, the, the Bible says, Beware lest any man spoil you. Now, to spoil somebody is to steal from them. Uh, to plunder, to pillage, that kind of an idea. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Right? A rudiment is a basic principle. It's a foundational principle by which something works. Those are the rudiments of the world. So the world has an operating system. It has basic principles by which it operates, by which society operates. We call it culture. And then there is the way Christ operates, right? We have Christ in His words. So those two things are always going to be pitted against each other. You might remember in Galatians 6.14, Paul said, I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified unto me. In Romans 12 verse 2, Paul says, uh, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what you have in romans twelve two are those two sides: you have the world, you have God, and those two operating systems the the, the way that they handle things are diametrically opposed now, in verse eight. Paul mentions, don't let any man spoil you. They're going to try to rob you of your treasure. With Jesus Christ, you have an absolute treasure. 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 7, the Bible says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. If you look at the verse before it, it talks about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the treasure that we have. Paul says, don't let any man steal that from you. How would they steal it? They would chip away at it. They would try to take away from Christ and say that he's not enough. You need a little bit of philosophy. You need a little bit of the world's opinion and the way they do things. Philosophy, the word itself, It's a Greek word and it means a lover of wisdom. By itself, philosophy isn't bad, right? Just the word itself. The problem is a lot of people that turn to philosophy the way most people refer to the word. We think of philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, men men like that, Philo the Jew, he was considered one. There are modern day philosophers as well. All through history, there have been men that have filled this role. And what philosophy seeks to do is to offer an explanation for how a thing works. How, not just a thing, it can be a specific thing, or it can be a philosophy about how all things work. But philosophy is a way of thinking or a way of explaining the operating of something. Now, philosophy... I believe it, it links in closely with psychology. Philosophy explains how a thing operates, how, how, how the process works in that thing. But then psychology is the study of human behavior. It's the study of the soul or the mind. So I see them as, as linked because you look at how a thing operates. Now those you can chart it out, those are facts. A plus B equals this and and you can reproduce those results. Psychology, when you start dealing with human behavior, you're dealing with a lot of factors. You, You start with this philosophy and then you say when we apply the when we put a person into this system, we see how they react to it. So those two things you'll often see going together. Now the problem with philosophy is that A lot of people, when they put together a system and try to explain how things, all things work, they are looking at it through the eyes of a depraved, fallen, finite, mortal man. And with our minds, even the sharpest of minds, right, we just don't have all the information we need to explain perfectly how everything works. So certain philosophers and certain psychologists, they will be able to offer some truth about the way things go and the way humans behave, all of us can observe those those things going on around us. But we shouldn't think that we have God in the Bible, and then we have to have some fallen man and and his opinions and the traditions of our culture and what uh, great grandma said about it, and that's what she said about life, and that's how they said things should go. We don't need all of that to add on to what God has revealed. God knows man, and He knows the world better than anybody. He knows the imagination of the thoughts of the heart, right? Genesis 6. So He can explain exactly the way it should work, and then He can explain how man messed it up, and He can explain what man needs to do to make it right, and that is come to Christ. So these two systems are going to bump into each other all the time. Now, verse number nine, he says, For in him, that is in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of the Godhead. The word Godhead appears three times in a King James Bible. And each time you're going to find some reference to the Trinity. I almost want to say it's synonymous, right? That word Godhead and Trinity. Now, A lot of Muslims really like to argue this. They say, when you say Godhead, you say three in one. Why not seven in one? Why not eight? Why not 10? Why does it have to be three in one? Well, because that's how many persons have been revealed as being in unison, right? This tri-unity, this trinity. If there were seven people involved in that unity, then there would have been seven, but there's three because God revealed three, Father, Son, and, and Holy Ghost. In Christ, you had all three parts or persons of God represented in human form, right? You, you, This was manifest at His baptism, actually. You had the Father speaking, you had the Spirit in the form of a dove, you had Jesus in, in human form in the water. But even, even there, the... As we saw in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So the only part of the Father that could ever be seen was manifested through Jesus coming into the world. It was manifested through God taking on human form. So when you're looking at Jesus, you are looking at the only visible part of the Godhead. And in Him, all the fullness of the Godhead. So everything you need. He is found in Christ. You're not going to add to God. He is our all in all. Verse 10, And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, principality and power, when Paul uses it, we we saw this in chapter 1 as well. It's a reference to the spiritual realm and the spiritual beings, angels, seraphim, cherubim and so forth archangel we only read about one there might be others but we only know of one that's michael so jesus is the head of that as we're going to see when we get down to verse 18 some people were worshipping angels but why would you worship the the people lower on on the on the scale you you, you would want to direct your worship towards the almighty not towards these limited beings so Paul is saying you have all you need in Christ, you don't need to add to that with, with angels. I have often found whenever I'm trying to minister to someone who was raised in, in some sort of African culture, there is a heavy emphasis on the spiritual realm, right? And in their system, it's often related to ancestors and the spirits of those that have departed, which I, I do not believe Paul intended the spirits of dead ancestors when he said principality and power. However, Paul is referring to the spiritual realm and in the typical African culture, the ancestors are part of the spiritual realm. So I've often used this verse, and there's a verse uh, in 1 chapter 3, and verse 21, that speaks about Jesus having authority and being the head of this spiritual realm. And I tell him, listen, if, if you're interested in that realm, how it works, Uh, Talk to the guy in charge. Go straight to the top. All right, verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So there was some pressure on the Colossian people to give in. I don't want to say give in, but to mix philosophy along with uh, the way Christ wanted them to live. So you take the world's way of doing it, mix it with the way Christ wants you to do it. Vain deceit is, uh, back in verse eight, if you remember, we read that there. Vain deceit is, is when men say flattering words. They tell you lies, but it, it, vain is like empty. So they're gonna tell you something that sounds real good, but there's really nothing to it. So I think of that as flattering words. They tell you what you want to hear. And, and Paul says, you have that to deal with, don't let them rob you. Don't give in to this angel worship and uh, being troubled about the rest of the spiritual realm. You have the head of that. And then there's also the Judaizers, which were pressuring the people, uh, you need to fall in line with Judaism, you need to get circumcised, and that will complete or add to your, your salvation and your relationship with God. Paul is now pointing out, guys, you have a circumcision that far surpasses that fleshly circumcision. You have a spiritual circumcision. You can see this in verse 11, a circumcision made without hands. So it's not a physical thing. It's done spiritually. And when it was done, it was the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. Right, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. This is something we cover in discipleship. I'll just remind you quickly here, but before you're saved, your, your flesh and your soul stuck together. And then when you receive Christ, those two things are cut apart. And it's part of the operation of God. So I always explain it that when somebody receives Christ, they're rushed immediately. And I mean immediately, in the unblick. They're taken straight into spiritual theater, and the Holy Spirit begins surgery. He takes the sword of the Spirit, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, and begins to cut. And the flesh and the soul are now separated. Now this, if you remember, in Romans 7, we talked about how the old man is dead and buried. He's, he's been removed, and that frees your soul now to be joined uh, to Christ in, in this covenant of marriage. And specifically, your spirit is joined to him, but the soul is also affected in that. So he says, "In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." That is not a circumcision of a rabbi. It's the circumcision of Christ. It's part of His operating system. So in order for you to have a relationship with God and to be able to serve Him and serve others, the old master had to die. He needed to be removed. And that's what has already happened for saved people. In verse 12, notice there's no full stop at the end of 11. It goes right into this thought. Buried with him in baptism. So we've been covering this quite a bit in Romans 5, 6, and 7. How the old man is crucified, dead, buried. Paul is consistent with his teaching. He's telling the Colossians the same thing using slightly different words, but same idea. Buried with him in baptism. That is not water baptism. There's nothing about water there. Now, this is where a lot of the enchia, the Dutch Reformed and and just Reformed um, uh, systematic theology, they turn to this passage to prove or to try to prove that baptism, sprinkling of infants, has replaced circumcision. So, in the Old Testament, To show that you were under the covenant, you had to be circumcised. But then in the New Testament, baptism has taken the place of circumcision.